Hey, welcome to the Can I Have Another Snack podcast, where I'm asking my guests who or what they're nourishing right now and who or what is nourishing them. I'm Laura Thomas, an anti-diet registered nutritionist and author of the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter. All right, so today you have a solo episode with me. And I'm going to be reading the essay that I published earlier this week called Sweet Little Lies. It's kind of fun, but also kind of serious and sciencey look at some of the pervasive misconceptions that we have around kids and sugar and kind of just trying to set the record straight. I don't want to call it myth busting because I find that sort of I'm the expert dynamic that weaponizes science and replicates violent power dynamics to be really problematic. But this is how I see things. If it resonates with you, that's cool. If not, you can just can it. You don't need to listen to me if you don't find it helpful. But I hope that for some of you, it kind of allays any fears you have about giving your kids sugar around Halloween, coming up to the holidays, that kind of thing. I'm linking to the full piece in the notes for this episode, so if you wanted to read along, you can, or you can send a link to a friend, share it in your parenting, WhatsApp groups, just spread the word a little bit. I also just wanted to share a quick programming note before we get into the episode. When I started planning Can I Have Another Snack, my intention was to have a weekly podcast with some really amazing guests, but now that I'm in it, I'm noticing that such an aggressive weekly schedule is just not sustainable for me for several reasons. For a start, it's super hard to pin folks down. People are busy, they have their own stuff to do, they don't reply to emails, I get it. Secondly, it doesn't leave me a lot of time to stalk my guests and do as much deep research that I would like to do to prepare for the interview. And third, it means I have a lot less time to research those in-depth articles like the one that I'm going to read to you today. So I'm proposing a more sustainable option, a more sustainable schedule, which would be a season of 10 episodes followed by a break of maybe six or so weeks and then another season of 10 episodes. And on those off weeks, I'll share some fun articles, link roundups, resources, maybe even a live AMA maybe some audio resources that I use with clients. And I'm going to do a mix of free and paid content too. Substack has loads of different cool post formats that I want to play around with and um, in that off season and just get a bit creative with. So I'm excited to test out some of those features. And just so we're all on the same page, we're going to have Um, episodes going until mid-November and then we're going to break until January and in those off weeks we'll have some more experimental content um, and see what works and I'd really appreciate I really appreciate you exploring the possibilities with me and letting me find a way of making this space sustainable without burning myself out. I also wanted to remind you that If you haven't already switched to a paid membership of Can I Have Another Snack, then you're missing out on the cool community-only features like our weekly discussion thread, Snacky Bits, our monthly Dear Laura column, plus next week you'll get my Raising Embodied Eaters download, which is a super helpful tool for pushing back against food and body shaming talk. 
And if you're listening to this on the Friday that it goes out, so that's the 21st of October, there will be a bonus audio recording of an essay that I shared last week, uh, a super personal essay where I share my reflections on a changing body and all of the difficult stuff that that has brought up um, and how I'm navigating that. So yeah, that's going to come out this Sunday. So if you've been thinking about becoming a paid subscriber, then now's the time. It's £5 for the month or £50 for the year. And if you can't afford that right now, but feel you'd really benefit from the content, then please email hello at laurathomasphd.co.uk. Just put snacks in the subject line. You don't have to explain yourself and we'll hook you up with a comp subscription. And thanks to those of you who have already subscribed. It really means a lot and I appreciate you putting your belief in this work and helping making my writing sustainable and making Can I Have Another Snack a viable project. All right, let's get to the essay. Sweet Little Lies Sugar, it seems, is the scariest part of Halloween. At least that's what you'd think, judging by all the healthy, sugar-free recipes and strategies to dupe our kids into handing over sweets in return for a toy. Looking at you, Switch Witch. The same scene plays out around every major holiday, Easter, Christmas, and Halloween being the worst offenders in terms of sugar scaremongering. I thought it was a good time to go deep on sugar and sweets, in hopes of allaying some of those fears so we can just, I don't know, enjoy Halloween and get on with our lives? I asked on Instagram what people heard about sugar in the playground and in those goddamn awful WhatsApp parenting groups. And here's what y'all came up with. Well, some of them. There are definitely enough sugar myths for us to do a part two. But this was getting unwieldy, even for me. Let's go. Sugar causes hyperactivity. You know the drill. Your kid goes to a birthday party, overloads on sugar, and comes home totally strung out. After a few hours of trying to harness this chaotic energy, your kid eventually crashes hard. You cuss out the parent who had the audacity to serve all the sweets at the kid's party and mentally ban your kid from ever eating sugar again. But guess what? That chaotic energy wasn't because your kid was overloaded on sugar. Before we discuss why, I want to address the ableist language in the room. Hyperactivity. This term is almost always used in a pejorative sense. That kid is so hyper, their mom just lets them run wild. By framing hyperactivity as abnormal or pathological, we are favoring neurotypical standards for behavior, stillness, quiet, calm. For some neurodivergent folks, stimming, which can involve a number of different behaviours, including fidgeting, flapping arms, and rocking back and forth, or running at top speed, are not optional. They are absolutely essential for self-regulation. Without it, they could become distressed or even melt down. And I do not mean through a tantrum a la my toddler in the middle of Tesco. If we only accept kids' exuberance and energy in certain situations or context, or at certain times, that's ableist. So how is it then that sugar has become connected to big bursts in energy? This theory emerged at the dawn of the crunchy, whole foods, socks and sandals era. In 1973, a pediatrician and allergist named Dr. Benjamin Feingold published the Feingold diet as a protocol to treat hyperactivity. In it, he advocated for the removal of foods containing salicylates, 
food coloring, and artificial flavoring from kids' diets. Although sugar wasn't named as part of the protocol, many parents extrapolated it to mean remove all food additives, including sugar. In a case study published around the same time, a doctor removed sugar from a single child's diet. Their behavior reportedly improved. This confirmed what many parents believed was the culprit for wild behavior, sugar. A case study with an individual child can scarcely be called science, yet the seed was planted and remains pretty firmly rooted, despite much harder evidence to the contrary. In 1995, researchers published a meta-analysis of several smaller studies exploring the relationship between sugar consumption and behaviour. This is like the granddaddy of study designs, because it means we can be more confident that the results weren't achieved by accident or random error. This analysis was especially robust because they had strict inclusion criteria, meaning they tossed out any trash studies and only included the ones with really well-defined parameters. This included knowing exactly how much sugar the kids were eating, comparing kids who ate sugar with those who had a placebo, and both the kids and the families being oblivious to what experimental condition they were in, i.e. sugar or placebo control, so their perception couldn't influence the results. And guess what they found? And this is a quote from the authors. Sugar does not affect the behaviour or cognitive performance of children. The strong belief of parents may be due to expectancy and common association. To test the theory that parents expected their kids to get worked up into a frenzy after eating sugar, scientists recruited 35 kids aged between 5 and 7. The kids had all been identified by the parent as sugar sensitive. They were then randomised into two experimental conditions. One group of parents were told that their kids received a high dose of sugar whereas the others were told that their kid received a placebo containing a sugar substitute instead. The parents of the kids in the sugar group reported that their kids were significantly more hyperactive compared to the control group. But here's the thing. None of the kids actually consumed any sugar. The whole thing was a ruse. The researchers also couldn't help but engage in some mother shaming too. Mothers in the sugar expectancy group exercised more control by maintaining physical closeness as well as showing trans to criticise, look at, and talk to their sons more than did the control mothers. I mean, how dare these parents look at their child? For me, this goes back to our social conditioning and our neurotypical and ableist standards for kids' behaviour. I'm pretty sure those mums were just trying to avoid the total mortification of being judged by other parents, as opposed to being complete control freaks or bad parents. But it does highlight how strongly we have internalised the sugar is bad rhetoric, and how it maybe has a bigger impact on our own behaviour than that of our kids. Okay, so I know what you're thinking. But I've seen them get super amped up after a party. Obviously it's the sugar. All right, friends, let me introduce you to a little concept called confirmation bias. This is the very human tendency to look for evidence that supports our worldview. We believe that kids will get hopped up on sugar, so we look for clues that it's the sugar causing the, quote, bad behaviour. Studies suggest that what parents are picking up on is actually behaviour that they are uncomfortable with non-compliance and irritability. 
and then labeling that as hyperactivity, says Kristen Schur, a parenting coach who supports families to have a positive relationship with food and bodies, who is also an ADHDer. She goes on to tell me how this narrative is rooted in ableism. Doing so stigmatizes people who actually have ADHD by associating hyperactivity with undesirable behavior. This negative thinking about hyperactivity is pervasive. Take one look at the Google results about ADHD and you'll find plenty of articles and books all about how parenting a child with ADHD is unbearable and how, um, how important controlling your kid with ADHD is. This perspective is inherently ableist because it po posits that ADHD is a negative thing and that any symptoms should be stomped out through behaviour modification. Look, you're not imagining it. Kids get super excited at birthday parties and at Halloween and other celebrations where foods are involved. But that doesn't automatically mean it's the sugar. Parties are exciting. Being with your pals outside of school is so fun. Getting presents is fucking awesome when you are 10. There are so many other variables that get kids pumped up. What can make them feel even more wired is if this is the first time they've seen sugar in a while. Which leads me to sugar is addictive. This is a given, right? We've all seen the headlines that equate sugar with hard drugs. We've seen our kids demolish their entire Easter egg stash in a wonder to the point of making themselves sick. And maybe we've even experienced it ourselves. A sense of feeling out of control or compulsive around foods, especially around sugar. It hits us right in the dopamine receptors. Intuitively, sugar addiction just makes sense. This is why it feels so difficult to untangle. But I would like to offer another way to frame sugar addiction. And if it resonates with you, that's cool. Equally, if it doesn't, I can hold that we have different views. It's all good. But here's my take. Feeling obsessive, compulsive, and out of control around food, especially sweet foods, is a hardwired biological response to feeling the threat or actually being deprived of that food. To help describe this phenomenon, I'd like to use the analogy of a pendulum that swings between diet land and donut land that I learned from the therapist Deb Burgard, which, side note, also helps explain why diets don't work for most people. In the online version of this post, I have shared a, an image of Dietland to Donutland, so check that out if you need some visual representation of what I'm talking about here. What happens when we pull a pendulum all the way to one side? It picks up momentum and swings all the way to the other side, right? And unless we intervene, it keeps bouncing back and forth from side to side. Restricting foods is like pulling the pendulum all the way to one side. Deb calls this diet land. When we let go of the pendulum, it immediately swings all the way to the other side, donut land. The harder we pull into diet land, the harder and faster we swing into donut land. But ha what happens when we leave a pendulum alone and just let it be? It finds a point between these two extremes where it sits effortlessly. Sure, it may oscillate a little back and forth, but there are no longer these vicious swings from one extreme to the other. When kids are banned from eating sweets, only given healthy treats or only allowed sweets on special occasions, 
It gives them a sense that these foods are scarce, that they're restricted and deprived of them. So naturally, when we are allowed to eat them in bigger quantities, they go off the rails. Maybe they're that kid at the party surreptitiously licking icing off the cake, or the one going back to grab handful after handful of Haribo. This all makes sense, though. They're responding to feeling like they're missing out. Another thing that can make kids seem kind of obsessed with sweets is if we make them into a big fucking deal. When we call sweets treats, naughties, or otherwise infer that there's something exceptional or equally something naughty about them, it puts them up on a pedestal. It creates a forbidden fruit effect, which only heightens kids' excitement about them. But hey, don't take my word for it. Let's look at the science. In 2016, a comprehensive review exploring the evidence around sugar addiction was published in the European Journal of Nutrition. The authors scoured the animal and human literature to find if there were any plausible mechanistic explanations and empirical evidence to support the view that sugar addiction was a viable diagnosis. Let's look at both sets of evidence because they each tell us something important about this phenomenon. First up, those little baby rats. Sorry, experimental rodent studies. These are often the ones that we see all up in the headlines. Sugar more addictive than heroin. The authors summarize the evidence like this, and I'm paraphrasing. Although animals appear to show addiction-like behaviours, there are two glaring limitations to these studies. One, there is no evidence of pharmacodynamic effects of sucrose, table sugar, leading to specific neurological changes in the same way that they are clearly defined in the case of drug addiction. And two, the animals only seem to show addiction-like behaviours after prolonged periods of fasting, usually 12, but sometimes up to 16 hours without access to food. The animals have been restricted, so it makes sense then that they go ham on their little bottles of sugar-laced water. Okay, so how about humans? It's important to state here that food addiction is operationalized to pathologize fatness and to explain why more people today have bigger bodies, neglecting the over 100 variables that determine any individual's body weight. Notoriously fatphobic researchers at Rudd Center for Food Policy and the O-Word at Yale University have developed something called the Yale Food Addiction Scale. Now in its second iteration, it's a self-administered questionnaire that purportedly diagnoses food addiction in line with DSM-5 criteria. That's the manual that psychiatrists use to make diagnoses. Using this tool, around 16% of the people studied meet the criteria for food addiction, and about 11% of those meet the criteria for severe food addiction. But here's the thing. Up to 60% of people with binge eating disorder meet the criteria for food addiction. Likewise, over 80% of people with bulimia nervosa meet the criteria for food addiction. This calls into question something researchers call construct validity. It's, is the tool actually measuring what it sets out to measure? In this case, the evidence points to the Yale Food Addiction Scale being an excellent screening tool for eating disorders, as opposed to uniquely diagnosing food addiction. The overlap between food addiction and bulimia and binge eating disorder is too high for them to be discrete diagnostic criteria. And it's easy to see how binge eating disorder can look a lot like food addiction from afar. 
especially if you only look at behaviors and not a person's overall relationship with food. No surprises then that the Yale Food Addiction Scale doesn't account for dieting and restriction, nor can it capture how a person feels about food or their body. This can really only be done meaningfully through a clinical assessment. As for sugar being addictive, the authors of the 2016 review stated, we find little evidence to support sugar addiction in humans, and findings from the animal literature suggest that addiction-like behaviours such as binging occur only in the context of intermittent access to sugar. These behaviours likely arise from intermittent access to sweet tasting or highly palatable foods, not the neurochemical effects of sugar. And, in conclusion, they say, given the lack of evidence supporting it, we argue against a premature incorporation of sugar addiction into the scientific literature and public policy recommendations, which is about as damning as it gets in a peer-reviewed journal. If your kid seems really preoccupied with sweet foods, that's a sign that they may need more access to that food, not less. Natural sugar is better. I don't totally understand how we got here, but somehow, almost a decade past the height of clean eating, we are still in a place where we believe that there's an inherent difference between table sugar and so-called natural or unrefined sugars like honey, maple syrup and fruit juices. So let's put this one to bed for good. Science time. All sugars, whether natural or otherwise, are made up of the same two simple sugar molecules, glucose and fructose. In white sugar, the two simple sugars, glucose and fructose, are bound together to form another sugar called sucrose. Sucrose is what you put on your Rice Krispies or in your tea. It's table sugar. In high fructose corn syrup, the glucose and the fructose are free in solution. But, you guessed it, there's more fructose than there is glucose. Same goes for agave syrup, except there's even more fructose. Agave syrup is more high fructose than high fructose corn syrup. Doi. Concentrated apple juice is 65% fructose. Honey also gets its sweetness from free glucose and fructose. What about other good-for-you sweeteners? Well, maple syrup is mostly sucrose. Coconut sugar estimates are around 70-80% to 80% sucrose, plus some free glucose and fructose for good measure. So maple and coconut sugars basically table sugar. Chemically speaking, sugar is sugar. But unrefined is natural. Dude, no. All sugar is natural in that it all started life in a plant. Even white sugar. It comes from sugar cane and looks like this. And I have a picture of some sugar cane growing in a field. It looks very natural. Coconuts, maple tree or sugar cane, your body can't tell where the hell it came from. But what about minerals? All right, cool it, we're getting there. There's a train of thought that natural sweeteners or unrefined sugars are better for you because they have more minerals and antioxidants in them. And technically it's true, but it's still a straw man argument. Let's use calcium as an example. Per 100 grams, White sugar has one milligram of calcium, honey has six milligrams, and maple syrup has 102 milligrams. Except you're not eating 100 grams of sweetener at a time. 
or at least if you did, you'd probably puke. And if you still want to play that game, molasses has 205 milligrams of calcium per 100 grams. Wonder why Team Clean hasn't started drizzling that all over their protein pancakes. The corollary of the natural fallacy that unrefined sugar is better is that predatory marketing flies under the radar. Those OT bars that you're feeding your toddler, the ones that promise no junk and are naturally sweetened, they contain 25 grams of sugar per 100 grams. For comparison, digestive biscuits contain 15 grams of sugar per 100 grams. And listen, I 100% give my toddler those OT bars. This isn't to shame the food or to shame anyone for serving the food. And it's also not to suggest that you should avoid these foods. They're fine foods. This is to highlight the undeniable classism, the misleading marketing and the questionable ethics surrounding these products and the natural sugar rhetoric. Oh, and sugar is sugar. Okay, last one. Fruit is too high in sugar. This is another one that I thought we put to bed in 2015. I cannot tell you the number of times I have heard from distressed parents who were fearful of feeding their baby or toddler fruit because they've been told that it was too high in sugar. I think this stems from the low-carb world, where they go around saying things like, a banana has 18 teaspoons of sugar. Really, Kevin? How'd they get that sugar in there, huh? Do they, like, peel it first, or...? Here's why this reasoning is regressive. The sugars in fruit are intrinsic to the food. Unlike in sweets and cakes, where we add the sugar separately. Now, to be clear, added sugars are not bad, and like we discussed, if we avoid them entirely, then that can backfire. The difference is that intrinsic sugar found in fruits and vegetables and some grains is packaged up alongside fibre, vitamins, minerals and other phytochemicals. Those are plant nutrients that aren't necessarily essential, but that can be health promoting. They're contained within the cells of the plants that they come from and take a bit of extra work for our bodies to break down meaning that they take a little longer to be released into the bloodstream than if you were, say, necking a Coke. And at the risk of confusing things, pairing added sugars with fat, fibre or protein-based foods can also help reduce the rate of glucose entering the bloodstream, which is helpful for blood glucose regulation. But the vast majority of children, those with type 1 diabetes notwithstanding, do not need to worry about how quickly sugar is being released into their bloodstream, nor is fruit going to significantly spike their blood glucose because overall it still contains not a lot of sugar. Fruit is an important source of nutrition for kids. As I talked about recently, they share a lot of the same nutrients as vegetables and may feel safer and more accessible for more selective or cautious eaters. But fear-mongering around fruit might have the side effect of causing parents to worry when their kid only eats fruit causing them to inadvertently put pressure on the kids to eat vegetables, which is a surefire way to cause them to push back and become fussier. I'm not saying that we shouldn't give a shit about sugar. After all, one of our jobs as parents is making sure our kids get a variety of foods over time to support their growth and development. What I object to is the fear-mongering and misinformation that equate giving our kids sweets to poison or drugs. Or the public health rhetoric about sugar that is more a reflection of anti-fat bias than of raising nutritional standards because it's good for everyone, regardless of their body size. 
fear-based approaches to nutrition aren't helpful for anyone, and if anything, only drive health disparities, a whole other thing we'll get into another time. If you've had a difficult relationship with food in the past, or are trying to figure out what a better relationship to food looks like now, relinquishing control of sweet foods can feel like a lot. It's worth reminding ourselves that the more we try to control or micromanage their access to sweets, the more it messes with their ability to build trust with their bodies. Kids need to make mistakes when it comes to food. It's what helps them learn how much is too much, how much is too little, and what feels just right. And side note, that still may be more than you are comfortable with. If this feels hard, notice where your kid is already showing you that they know what they're doing and that you can trust them. P.S. I know that you may still have questions on sugar. What about teeth? When is it okay to introduce sugar to babies and toddlers? What about sugar crashes and slumps? I'm going to try and get to all of this in a part two down the line, as well as maybe some more practical advice about serving sugar. So let me know if that's something you'd like to see. And just a last little note before I go. Many thanks to Jenny Ag for her editorial support and it'd be super cool if you check out her book which is coming out next year and I've linked to that in the show notes for this episode. All right, see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Can I Have Another Snack? If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review in your podcast player and head over to laurathomas.substack.com for the full essay plus links to research and other articles. While you're over there, consider signing up for either a free or paid subscription to Can I Have Another Snack newsletter where I'm exploring topics around bodies, identity and appetite, especially as it relates to parenting. Also, it's totally cool if you're not a parent, you're welcome as well. We're building a really awesome community of cool, creative and smart people who are committed to ending the tyranny of body shame and intergenerational transmission of disordered eating. Can I Have Another Snack is hosted by me, Laura Thomas, edited by Julie Kelly. Our funky artwork is by Caitlin Presser and the music is by Jason Barkhouse. And lastly, Fiona Bray keeps me on track and makes sure this episode gets out every week or so. The episode wouldn't be possible without your support. So thank you for being here and valuing my work and I'll catch you next week. Mm -hmm.